Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. Let's share the game. Awesome to welcome Indiana Wesleyan head coach Greg Tonegal to the Basketball Podcast. Tonegal has been the head coach since 2005 and has 500 wins in fewer games and younger than any coach in college basketball history. Under his leadership, the team has won three NAIA Division II national championships in 2014, 2016, and 2018, and has been the number one ranked team in NAIA Division II for four seasons. Tonegal has also coached 25 NAIA Division II All-Americans and has won 12 Crossroads League's regular season championships and five Crossroads League tournament championships. He has coached two NAIA National Players of the Year and has the most wins, the highest win percentage, the most NAIA National Tournament victories, the most National Tournament appearances, the most Crossroads League regular season championships, and the most cross league tournament championships in program history. He has been named NABC NAIA Division II National Coach of the Year three times. Greg, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Hey, I appreciate you having me on, longtime listener. Well, heard about you, and I'll be honest, until I really dove in, I didn't realize how super successful you've been. 500 wins in fewer games than any coach in college basketball history, fastest ever in the NAIA, and youngest ever at any level. Coach, that's pretty good stuff. It sounds good on paper. I'm not sure it's as true as it is, but yeah, I've been fortunate to be here for, for a long run. I've had some incredible teams and players and coaches, and probably most of all, just some incredible experiences with these guys. We're going to talk about that because I know that's something that's important to you. And, uh, you know, it's on one of your websites, which basically outlines your coaching mission to raise a generation of men who will trade the pursuit of me for the pursuit of three. So maybe let's start with that. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think everybody's looking for their purpose in coaching. And a lot of us are drawn into coaching for for various reasons. And, you know, it took me a little while to really figure out my calling and my purpose in coaching. But you know, I, I say it like that. I want to raise a generation of men who will trade the pursuit of me for the pursuit of three. And I, I just think we live in a culture that really sells the idea that if you look inward, that if you focus in on yourself, you're going to be successful. And I think coaches more than anybody else know that the, this isn't the reality of successful teams. Like we've got to learn to get outside of ourselves. We've got to learn to uh, see the big picture and, you know, to, to help bring that into context through the game of basketball. Uh, is what I get to do. And so we we call it I'm third, God first, other second, self third. And uh, the fun and challenging part is fleshing this out through the game of basketball because the reality is it's it's only words on a wall until it, it, it really becomes life on the court. And I think every year we're trying to learn new ways to bring this to life on the basketball court. Well, as a listener of the podcast, you know that that's a pursuit of mine as well, is to get beyond just the words and get to kind of the depth of how you actually put this into action, because clearly it's gone into action with the success in your program as well. And I know there's two cultural pieces to what you've built your program on. I am third and fearless. So let's dive a little bit deeper into I am third. Explain it to us a little bit deeper. And then how does that actually manifest itself within your program? Yeah, so, you know, as I stated, I just I just think there's this cultural gravity, I guess, might be the best way to say it, where we're taught to look inward, we're, we're taught to focus in on ourselves. And it's not a very fruitful way to live life, but it's also not a great way to play basketball. I think as when we're developing our team, when we're trying to get the most out of our team, what we realize is 
when we're playing for each other, when we're getting outside of ourselves, when we're thinking bigger than just me, 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 we tend to have greater results and greater opportunities to, to have success. And so I think teaching young men when they come into the program that, hey, look, this isn't about you. And I think it starts with the recruiting pitch. I'm not afraid to tell a kid that if you come here, you're probably not going to get everything you think you want. Uh, in fact, we're going to focus less on you. And what we're going to ask is that you focus more on others. And the reality is that's scary for some, but those who catch that vision, I think, realize that's ultimately what they want. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves because someday when the ball stops bouncing, you know, and you got a family, you got a job, you live in a community, that's what you're called to do. And so it starts with that. And that's not easy because we live in a day and age where AAU culture is built around the individual. We have parents, although I think they mean well. They're focused on only the individual. And what we're trying to say is, look, this isn't about you. This is about something bigger than that. But we understand they love the game of basketball. And so we want to teach them through the game of basketball how to do that. And so I think when they see success, when they see, hey, I actually play better when I don't step on the court and worry about my shot, or I actually play better when I'm not on the bench pouting about my minutes, it starts to, I guess, snowball. We get some traction. They start to buy in. And once everybody buys in and has success, they start to embody this and they start to live this out. Well, I love this. And certainly it can be said in a lot of different ways, team first and give yourself to the whole and all that. When you give, you will receive. And, and all that's great. But when it comes to role definition, that's the part I'd like to hear a little bit more about, because obviously you have better players than other players and you have players that have bigger roles than other players. So talk to us about how this helps you define that for players. Yeah, I think one of the, the most challenging uh, aspects of coaching is defining roles for everybody because everybody wants the main role, right? Everybody envisions themselves taking the winning shot or making the winning play or playing X amount of minutes. But the reality is we need everybody to buy into the role that we see as coaches. So to me, this is an ongoing conversation that takes weeks, months, seasons. You know, some kids get it right away, some don't. But you often get more of what you reward. So one of the things I think we do well in our program is we just reward the the little things that are often unseen, the way you add value to a team that's in practice it could be as simple as guys that set screens. It could be the way guys cheer, the way they mop up the floor. When this becomes your identity rather than just an activity, meaning I begin to see myself as what I can add value to the team, not just what I'm doing in the moment. I, I tend to do more of that. And so I think over the course of time, over many conversations, guys begin to really buy into that. Guys begin to see their place in the program. It doesn't mean we don't fight selfishness. I just think we've got a roadmap maybe to, to combat it a little bit more because it's always showing up. You know, it shows up at the beginning of season. It shows up mid-season. And by the end of season, you're still dealing with a little of that. But if you've given the guys a bigger vision than just themselves or just basketball, I think you've got a chance to really to motivate them. The key to what you said there is you have a roadmap to deal with it. And I think that's beautiful. And I think so many coaches just need a roadmap. And I imagine this is something that, again, you keep coming back to the same terminology, the same phrasing, the same emphasis, and then driving that point home and connecting it for players is the biggest part of getting them to be able to buy into what you're doing, right? Absolutely. I, I think what I am third has done for us is it's created alignment. And that alignment centered around common belief, concerted actions, collective results. So there's a belief that we have that's greater than just, you know, basketball. But then there's this idea that we're all moving in the same behaviors toward that. So we, we elicit the same actions. 
And then hopefully we're getting collective results as, as, and that, that motivates guys to want to do more of that, right? When they see the success happen, it's like, okay, I'll buy in. And, and I am third is, is not a culture that you look for. It's a culture you commit to making. So when you come to this program, you've committed to sacrificing something. You've committed to surrendering something, which is hard to do. But as you do that, I think you find success. And I think you find the joy in, in, in what you've been called and, and how you've been created to play the game and to benefit other people. You mentioned the AU space. I'm in that space now with my younger daughters. And I'll tell you, and I, I really do believe this is a separator between the – all coaches are trying to do their best, absolutely, but the better coaches. The separator for me is not technique. It's not tactics. It's not any of that stuff. It's consistency and consistency and messaging. And I just find there's so much inconsistency and messaging coming from certain coaches that it becomes really hard for a player to function within that team, doesn't it? Oh, it's so hard. I mean, we're we're fighting that. I've got young kids too. And in fact, I coached their AAU team, a middle school AAU team this past year. And it's all based around, you know, a kid has a good game. People come up to him, they ask for his his Instagram, his Twitter, because they, they want him to post. They want to recognize him. And they're building this mantra that, you know, I, I, my identity is in what I do and how I perform rather than my identity is based in how I sacrifice and give to others and, and make the team better. And it's the same thing, I think, too, with like the way skill development is. Parents are paying thousands of dollars to only teach a kid what to do when the ball's in his hands. So the kid develops this idea that my game is about when the ball's in my hands. And you and I both know we've seen the statistics, you know, the ball's in your hands less than you know, even if you're a great player, less than 5% of the game. So the question then becomes, what are you doing the other 95% when the ball is in your hands? Well, most kids don't know because they've never been taught and they certainly haven't developed this identity. So that's a lot of what we fight when guys get come to our program is helping them define winning when the ball's not in their hands. And that takes a lot of time, a lot of intentionality, and it helps when you have a culture that is reinforcing it. I mean, I don't know how I would do it outside of, you know, the I am third culture. I mean, like you said, people do it in other ways. But for us, it helps teach that, man, there's so much more than just when the ball's in your hands that you can help us win and be successful. Well, it's a great segue because I wanted to get into how this connects on the court, particularly within practice. So I am third, God first, other second, self third. How does that then appear in practice in terms of you getting them to play the style that's going to best suit your team? The way I like to look at it is it's, it's a funnel. And at the top of the funnel, you've got, you know, your culture. So for us, it's I am third and fearless. Then as the funnel kind of moves down and it, and it thins out, you have what we would say is program language. It's, it's the way we communicate. It's how we talk. You know, I'm a big believer that words create life. Uh, as coaches, we got an opportunity to plant something inside of kids that sparks something in them, whether it motivates them, whether it encourages them. And unfortunately, I think often in coaching, and I've, I've done this, and especially when I was a young coach, my words do the opposite. They restrict. They tell kids what they're not. They paint a picture that the future is bleak. And so what we say is we want to speak life Here's an analogy that I often think about. It's the, the bread pan versus the yeast. I think sometimes coaching is the bread pan where I'm going to force my will upon you so that you fit a certain shape. As opposed to yeast, wherever yeast enters, it makes something rise. So if I can begin to envision the way I coach, the way I speak is yeast. And every conversation with a player, I, I cause something to rise to its potential. I think I've opened a door for new opportunities for my team. So we're going to be very... 
particular about the language in which we use all the way down to where our drills are named after such, you know, so we've got some drills that we call, you know, fearless box catch, fearless catch. We've got some four on four offensive games we play. It's called four on four create where you get more points if you're creating for a teammate. So the, the culture of the program begins to funnel down into the language, which then funnels down into the practice drills. So we want to practice what we say. And then hopefully what you're seeing at the bottom then is just the style of play. And so what we would say at the end of the day is our style of play is a byproduct of our cultural influence. So hopefully when people watch us play, they see a format of I am third. There's a sacrifice. We're thinking about others. We're creating for others. There's an element of fearlessness. We're hopefully not thinking. We're playing really aggressive. We're not playing it safe. You know, I don't want my players to play it safe. What we say is greatness favors the fearless. I mean, if you just look throughout history, anytime there's been something done significantly well, there's been an element of fear that's been removed. Somebody went for it. Somebody took a risk. Yeah, you may fail, but at least you went for it. So we're trying to embed that into the way we play. And at the end of the day, you know, hopefully it creates some sort of result. And if you're watching us, maybe you can't put your finger exactly on it if you haven't, you know, per se read about us, but you're like, that's, there's something different about the way those guys play that to me, that's the greatest compliment. You know, I don't, I don't really care if people say, Oh, I love your style or, you know, you guys are perfect, but it's, there's something different, man. There's something unique about the way your players play and the way they love the game. Love that. And uh, I love connecting your philosophy to your drills and your drills are kind of born from your philosophy. And that to me makes total sense. Instead of starting with the drill, you're starting with the philosophy and everything comes from there. I I really enjoyed learning more about you through this process. And one of the lines that I heard you say is my team doesn't need my strength. It needs my weakness. And I just think that's such a beautiful thing for a leader to be able to express. Yeah, that's a hard thing for a leader to do, right? I mean, sometimes I think it's it's hard for me to stand in front of my team and say, hey, fellas, I don't have the answer right now. And I've done that multiple times. But what I've said is, hey, maybe we can figure this out together. You know, we're we're in a little bit of a spell right now. We're we're trying to find our defensive identity and I'm trying different things. And rather than just force my will upon these guys and, and be real angry with them, it's like, look, I need you to help me figure this out together. And there's a there's vulnerability involved in that. But I think anytime there's vulnerability, there's an opportunity for growth. And it's one of the main factors I think that helps people grow is when they're honest and when they open up. And it also sends a message that, hey, we're in this together. I want to I want to be alongside of you, but I also need you to be alongside of me. And hopefully we'll get this figured out. I believe a lot of that that type of mentality is born from your security that that early on as a coach, it's really hard to be that way, isn't it? So I'm curious kind of how you evolved to this point as a coach to give others a perspective, because I think it was a long time for me to get to that point as well, just because naturally, again, it, we're ego defense, we're, we're proud, we're, we've got the answer, we've done all this work, you know, and getting to this point where we have this shared experience where we co-create solutions rather than give solutions is a really hard process to get to. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm almost embarrassed of the way I coached early on. So this is my 19th year. If you me too, me coach. Years, me too. <laughs> if you'd have watched me in years one through five, you know it's typical. We lose. Guys don't file the scouting report. I walk in the locker room and I say, "Look, I'm embarrassed. You guys made me look bad." And that that is an ego thing. And that's that's not, I think, how you raise a generation of men who are confident, who want to move move forward. And ultimately, what it is, it, it what I'm telling them is. My identity's in winning, and you're screwing my identity up. And somewhere along the way, by, by the God's grace, I've grown to not place my identity in winning. 
you know, we can lose a game and it still stings as bad and I still don't sleep, but I don't go to the immediate place of, well, this is what you did to me, or this is how people are going to perceive me, but rather, hey, look, we've got to fix this together. And it's a challenge. I love challenges in coaching. I'm not going to blame you. I'm also going back to the analogy. It's not, it's not me forcing my will upon you at the bread pan. It's okay. How do I walk into a place, speak life, still include discipline because these guys need discipline, but discipline is, is the alignment of my expectations with their potential. That's a completely different conversation. When I begin to look at discipline that way, saying, okay, here's your potential. You can be much better than you were. Here's my expectations. I'm not lowering them, but together we're going to march towards this. And if we can figure out how to do that, we move forward a lot faster than like, all right, go get your shoes. We're going to run tomorrow. You know, I'm going to punish you for this because that doesn't move anybody forward. That only brings fear in. And anytime fear is part of the equation, you're not motivating your guys. You're just paralyzing them. Couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, then let's maybe dive into that a little bit more about how to convey strength without being coercive or domineering, because that's obviously a big part of this. Yeah, it's it's another it's a little bit of a paradox. I think as we go back to this idea that if I walk in and, and my ego goes into the room first, I think I'm eliciting strength, but all I'm doing is showing the guys where I'm insecure and where I'm weak. Whereas if I can walk in a room as a leader and start with the point of maybe humility or start with vulnerability, I'm actually eliciting strength and I'm showing these guys this this is how you you react as a man to life's disappointments because the reality is you know, you're going to face some, you know, when you leave this place. And if you can face it with humility and you can be transparent with others, you got a chance to overcome. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. You know, we get in the middle of competition and we think the whole world is about the game that I'm coaching or even the season. And we lose sight of the, the big picture. And so it starts with what you said right there is about transferring strength actually through humility. And I think over time that builds trust. And that's what we all want from our teams. We want them to trust us so that at the end of the day, they'll run through a brick wall for us, regardless of if it sounds like you know a great plan or not. We want them marching ahead. And uh, to get there, though, I think you're going to have to be vulnerable and you're going to have to show some humility. It's amazing. As you're talking about this, like, you know, I'm 25, almost 30 years into my coaching career. And I still have moments where people tell me that's not coaching. And it's people's perception of what coaching is that still drives so much of the toxicity in coaching. And obviously, you've heard me talk about it maybe on the podcast about Hollywood, Hollywoodization of coaching, about how they portray it, all these Netflix shows and all these different things portray coaching kind of negatively. And people think that's what coaching is. And if they watched you, I'm sure they would say the same thing. Oh, wait a minute. That's not coaching. And without knowing your record, they would judge that, wouldn't they? Absolutely. I get people all the time. They're like, you need to get more mad. And, and, and I said, look, I get fired up. Don't get me wrong. Sure, you're intense. <laughs> what good does that do in the moment? You know, so many people, coaches, and I've done this, so I, I'm, not, I'm not casting blame. You call a timeout. You tell everybody, stop playing scared. You need to do this. And you just start screaming at them. Everybody needs to calm down. <laughs> and then you realize all you're doing is eliciting more stress in the situation. You know, there, there's a book by Edwin Friedman. He's one of the greatest psychologists in, in history. And he called failure of nerve. And his basic thesis is stress is passed from person to person. It's, it's system. And in coaching, I often think about that. Our players are stressed. We call a timeout. And then we just bring more stress in by yelling and screaming. And then we finish the huddle by saying, now calm down. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. Like you need to call the timeout to remove the stress or remove the, the anxiousness from the situation. 
So I think there's a lot to learn from, from maybe some psychologists about how to actually coach. And I'm not saying I got it figured out. I'm, I'm trying to learn that and become better at that. Well, and again, stress is passed from person to person. I mean, I think about that. If I just pause and reflect on that quote every single time I want to speak, then I will speak differently because it'll give me perspective before I speak on what I'm actually saying and how it's being conveyed. And that's, again, it's a, we're not saying this is easy. This is very hard, but that's such a beautiful thing. Another paradox you kind of explain is this concept of we all want to climb to the top, but once you get there, it's kind of lonely. So talk to us about kind of how you combat that as a coach. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. We won our third national championship in 2018, and I remember wanting that one really bad. There's a big lie out there. If you win one, you think you're going to be happy. No, you just want two. If you win two, you want three. It just never ends if it's, if it's only about the winning. But we win the national championship, and it was, in a, it was a crazy moment. The reporter comes out, they hand me the trophy, and they tell me to hold it up. And it was almost like I had this vision where kind of everything stopped. And I began to see a lot of coaching friends who had de- devoted so much of their life to coaching, but it had made some sacrifices of family, of time, who had lost marriages. And I just thought, is this moment, is it worth all that? But then immediately my mind shifted to the year, to the players, to the moments we had in the locker room, to our father's son retreat where we had dads kind of pouring out their hearts, to, to all the really cool things that had happened. And this all happened in a in just, you know, probably 10 seconds, but it felt like several minutes. And it was like, that's it. That That's what it's about. And it just reminded me, like, if you're so focused on getting to the top, whether that's a job or whether that's winning, you're probably going to be dissatisfied, you know, once you get there. And and ultimately, I know everybody wants to be a head coach, and there's a lot of, of uh, awesome opportunities in head coaching, but it can be lonely at the top, right? You, you certainly get the credit for winning. For, for whatever reason, people think I've won 500 games on my own, which is obviously not the case. I mean, I couldn't go do this at a lot of other places. But at the same time, you get the blame for a lot of things and you carry the weight of your players. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest burdens. It's just the weight you carry for your players. It's not just a strategy that keeps you up at night, right? It's people that keep you up at night, the good and the bad. And I think that's why coaching to me is the greatest profession. It's one of the greatest opportunities you have to speak life into players and to impact them for generations. But with that comes a heavy, heavy weight and, and cost often. Love it. And talking about conveying this strength in a different way as a coach, one of the questions that I know people would ask you, and I will, is how then do you handle accountability? How do you then handle, you've talked about discipline, but how do you actually get players to do the right things without, again, this traditional toxic domineering coercive approach? Yeah, I. there are, there are times where, I wonder, gosh, should I just be harder? Should I be yelling? Because, you know, as a coach, you, you, you feel this um, burden of, of wanting your players to constantly meet your expectations. And so there's a, I still have high expectations for my players. In fact, I want them to seek perfection, but I'll settle for excellence. And there's always that fine line of how are the players interpreting that? You know, we just recently this week began to talk to our guys. We, we could tell they were, they were playing fearfully. Many were playing, playing it safe. And as I asked them questions one-on-one and as I just let them speak, kind of what I heard was, hey, I just feel like you want me to be perfect and I'm not. And that's an error on my part, right? And I wanted to say, I do want you to be perfect, but I'm going to settle for excellence, you know? So like, is that possible as we move forward that I hold you at a high expectation, but at the same time, there's room for mistakes. You're not going to play a perfect game. I'm not going to coach a perfect game. 
And hopefully you find freedom in that. And I think the key question, as I asked my players, each one was fill in the blank for me. I play it safe when, and just give them moments to speak. And I was amazed at the stuff they said, and it was great feedback for me. I certainly was, was lost in film, lost in trying to become better that I hadn't even realized the way I was coming across and rather than fight it and say, okay, you guys all come to my communication style. It was okay. I'm going to figure out ways to, to, to communicate better and meet you where you are at, but help me and meet me where I'm at. Once again, we're in this together. It's not me versus you. We're in this together. And they were very fruitful conversations this week. Coaches, a brief interruption from the podcast to talk about Hoopsalytics. With basketball season approaching quickly, do you have an affordable, powerful stats and analytics system in place yet? Rather than overspending on the same old antiquated stat system, you can get cutting-edge video link stats and deep analytics at around half the price you're paying now. Hoopsalytics analysts will break down games for you so you can instantly measure the effectiveness of your players, lineups, and player combinations. And you can add tracking for your unique plays, sets, and actions to see what's working and what needs to be improved. You can even measure shot quality and things like contested and uncontested shots to improve your offensive points per possession. Features like interactive shot charts, game timeline visualizations, assist maps, and more makes Hoopsalytics an invaluable resource for coaches of all levels. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you save money and make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today to learn more and start analyzing your games for free. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball. Okay, so let's dive deeper because this is beautiful. Uh, let's give some specific examples if you don't mind. Talk about some alternatives. Players screw up on the court. Traditionally, run them for mistakes. Talk about some alternatives for us. Yeah, I think if you're always, if you're always telling players what they're not or what not to do, you're actually not producing a positive behavior. So here's, here's the number one. Don't turn it over, right? I, I had a kid who's turning it over. So if I, all I yell is don't turn it over, he may not turn the ball over next game. But guess what? He may also not get an assist. So our team doesn't benefit by not turning it over, right? Just by eliminating a negative behavior actually doesn't produce a positive behavior. So rather than that, we begin to watch film, and I'm just asking the question, are you catching it fearlessly? And so we go back to the way we've drilled our guys for the last six months. When you catch fearlessly, that means your shoulders are squared at the rim, your eyes are seeing the rim, and you look like you're putting the defense on its heels. And it was like, no, I'm, I'm playing real passively. Okay, do you think playing passively causes more turnovers? Well, it did here. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you to not turn it over. What I'm going to tell you is, you need to start catching fearlessly. Well, I painted a picture for a kid, right, of what it looks like to play fearlessly, which hopefully results in more assists. And I think over time, if he hears that, he's going to begin producing the, the, the desired behaviors that we all want. So once again, coaching is not about eliminating behaviors only. Yes, I think we eliminated turnovers, but I think we did it in a way that actually produces something that's positive. And you could have the same conversation with bad shots. I think my first five years, I said the word bad shot a thousand times, you know, in film sessions. Well, just because you eliminate bad shots doesn't mean you produce good shots. So we no longer talk about bad shots, but what we talk about is, are you fearlessly creating for somebody else? So when you catch, are you only thinking about your shot? Or if you take a shot, did you take it as if you actually wanted to make the shot? You know, there's times where guys shoot it tentatively. It's like, I'm not going to tell you that's a good or bad shot. All I'm going to say is you didn't look like you wanted to make it. So 
just know I'm behind you if you're going to play fearlessly and you're going to play aggressive. And I think over the years, you know, we've shot a high percentage. We're consistently in the top 10 in the country in field goal percentage. I think because we take quality shots, but we take shots aggressively and with confidence. And that's without saying, don't take bad shots. Great examples. That's awesome. And uh, maybe then off the court. So traditionally, again, we lecture, we yell, we spend issues for a player off the court with their behavior. So talk to us about some alternatives there. Well, I mean, that's there's a lot of one-on-one conversations. And I think you're just, when you're invested into players outside of basketball, and I think a lot of times our staff is committed to not having basketball conversations sometimes. So I think it's a little surprising when you pull a player up in your office and he's like, oh, no, you know, what are we going to talk about? And all you do is talk about life. How's mom? How's dad? How's school going? And then they leave and they're like, I, I think coach kind of cares about me, you know, outside of this. So then when you have that tough conversation, kid cheated on a test or, you know, maybe there was an off-court incident. It's not just, hey, coach, all he cares about me as a performer. And as you know, I've got this performance identity. It's like coach cares about me. and. I think our guys know our doors are always open. We spend a lot of time in these one-on-one conversations, talking about life, teaching them their faith. Because I think, you know, for us, when you go back to I am third, it starts with God first. And so helping players connect deeply in their faith is very meaningful for them. It shows them the big picture and it continues to move them forward. Beautiful stuff. And you mentioned the father-son retreat. So let me go there first. Because I, I, I've read it from some of your <laughs> players when they, I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was a document where they summarized some of their experiences from a year. And basically a lot of them referred to this. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So this was in like year seven of my career. We were having a problem with the player. He would not respond to authority. And I'm kind of beating my head over it thinking, why can't he respond to me? And uh, it dawned on me that he had a dad issue, uh, which many of us do. And it's pretty common. And uh, the way he was showing it was just his resistance to authority. And I thought, you know, I've kind of pushed the dads away, you know, like, most coaches do because we don't want to deal with parents, you know, especially high schoolers. And I don't blame them, but we begin to kind of to dream about what would it look like if we invited the dads in? Because now as a parent, there's nothing I want more than to be on the inside, right? Every day my children come home from practice. I say, how did practice go? And they give me like a one word answer. And I continue to ask questions because I want to be on the inside. So what we said is, Hey, we're going to invite the dads in. And, and we have a, a donor who uh, kind of caught this vision and now, uh, pays for that, whatever we want to do. So we'll go one year. We went whitewater rafting in West Virginia. We've been to Cubs games. We'll rent a lake house and there'll be 35 of us. And basically we say, Hey, this, this weekend involves two things. And it's always a couple weekends leading into the start of practice in the fall. We say, we're going to have great food and we're going to have great conversations. And it's amazing how the dads just, they look forward to this weekend. They get to hear from the players, what's happening in the program. How is my son growing? They make really deep connections with each other. So now when season starts, you'll see them show up early. They're hanging out. There's not kind of turf wars because, you know, they're not fighting over minutes with their sons. And they understand the program is far bigger than playing time. So we haven't eliminated all, you know, parental problems with playing time. But we've also made that to be a lesser issue and said, look, there's so much more going on here. And if you can help participate in that, you can help move your son forward. So it's a weekend I look forward to every single year. My dad comes. I started bringing my sons and we just see tremendous growth. And I think those are the, those are the things that often come into season that don't show up in the stat sheets. You can't quantify a father son retreat. I don't know if it helps in rebounding. I don't know if it helps in shooting percentage, but it makes us more together. 
It makes us smile more. It makes us trust more. And at the end of the day, I have to believe that shows up in the stat sheet somehow, some way. Well, I imagine it puts, puts your parents on your team more too, which uh, is, is a cute key, key part of this at all levels of basketball is obviously don't make your parents enemies, make them allies in some way. And this must help that experience, doesn't it? Absolutely. It teaches them. It teaches them without lecture. You know, I think my first couple of years, I sent out an email. Hey, I don't want to hear from you unless it's about academics. Well, if you're a parent and that's what you get, a wall goes up as opposed to now, hey, we're going to bring you in, pay for an entire weekend. We're going to have a blast together. We're going to tell you about the program. And now I need your partnership in this, right? Like we need you. Your son needs you. Let's move forward in, in a positive way. And uh, I wouldn't trade this experience or this weekend for anything. So does this come back from your psychological background a little bit, the Sigmund Ford, you eat a post complex type of thing? I mean, that, that's my initial thought on this is obviously you develop that, you know, that attachment with the opposite sex parent, but not necessarily you have that more combative relationship with same sex parent. To me, that's part of this. But I'm curious then, what do you do for mothers? Yeah. So what, what happened is a few years after, you know, I started getting these emails from the moms like, hey, when's our retreat? What's happening? So. <laughs> My wife will host a mother's breakfast. We have an annual tournament every year. It's one of the first ones to kick off the year, and uh, she'll she'll invite the moms in. And what we started to do was each player makes a video, and they've turned out to be really funny videos. Hi, mom. You know, this is this is Johnny. I love you. This is what I remember about our time together, and and it just means the world to the moms to to hear from their sons and and to be drawn in in the same way. So, yeah, we're definitely trying to bring everybody in the fold. I love it. This, this is the magic of the podcast. Thanks for sharing that stuff, because I think that's the depth of stuff that uh, really helps people kind of understand what are some things they can do to really impact their program and people beyond their program as well. So, Coach, you mentioned fearless. That's kind of the other cornerstone of what you talked about. You brought it up in different contexts a little bit. I think the quote that you said is greatness favors the fearless. So talk to us a little bit more, more about this fearless and the philosophy that overrides your program. So I grew up you know, in the state of Indiana and some of the greatest coaches in the history of basketball. But I also grew up thinking coaching was about using fear for motivation. And I even, that's how I coached myself. You know, that, that's why I got up at 5 a.m. As a, as a high school, because if I didn't, I told myself I would fail. And so that will get you so far. But that also puts a lid, I think, on, on who you can become as a player and as a coach. You know, if, if you use fear, it'll get you so far, but it's also going to put a lid on the potential of your team. And I realized this, we went to four straight elite eights early on in my career. And when we got to the fourth one and got beat, I began to ask the question, why can't we get to a final four? Like I could feel the lid. I couldn't articulate the lid. It was just something was there. Something was missing. So, you know, every year I kind of go on this journey of like, how do I become a better coach? And I decided to call two random coaches in the NAI who had won national championships and who had played completely different than me. And I was like, I'll do whatever. Like, I want to change. And I really thought I was going to get drills and I was going to get different schemes. I had a pad of paper. When I got to the second, I flew out to the second program. The word fearless just came up over and over and over. I was talking to the secretary and they're like, yeah, the players just they don't have any fear. They got a lot of joy. I talked to the managers and they're like, hey, coach just takes fear out of the game. I talked to the players and they're like, man, we don't play it safe. We go at it. And it was like speaking to me very clearly. And I remember I got on the plane. I sent our staff a note. I said, look, I don't know what this means, but I feel like God's calling our program to become fearless. Let's, let's go in the off season learning about this. So we go on this long journey of like, anytime we read about fearless, anytime we opened up scripture and like, saw the word fear we were like 
let's just learn and grow. And, and I have to say this, because one of the unique things I, I learned was if you take all the things Jesus talked about and you package them into genres or topics, fear was the number one topic he talked about. And it blew my mind because I was thinking, well, if he talked about this the most, and he must know something about what fear does to people. So we begin to then say, how do we apply this to basketball? And you can apply it in a million ways. One, I realized you can't hand a player a five-page scouting report. That brings fear of not having it all right. So we took our scouting reports and dumbed them down. A lot of it was our language that we used. It was instead of saying, don't take this bad shot, it was, are you fearlessly playing for your teammates? And we went through this journey throughout the year. And just like any year, it was up and down. You could tell we were moving in a different trajectory. And we got to that Elite Eight. And we punched through it like never before, one by double digits. And then we won our next two games and won our first national championship. And for me, it was the moment that like, man, this is the way that I've been called the coach. This is the way to get the most out of your teams. Fear is no longer the motivator. It is the paralyzer. And as a coach, I've got to do a better job of paying attention how to take fear out of the game. And so I've, I've been able to talk to a lot of coaches about this. You know, one of the, my most favorite stories, I played with Scott Drew at Baylor. God had that moment when they won the national championship where he sensed some fear and he was able to go into his team and say, okay, I sense fear. How do I remove it? And man, his team just punched through. And so I, I could give you a million examples of how fear is helping teams and players and just individuals reach new potential in life. Well, we'd love to hear maybe one of those examples, but maybe just before you do talk about the other side of that, which is obviously failure, because that's one of the most debilitating things for players is that fear of failure. <laughs> Yep. It, it is for me. And here's, here's the thing I know about fear of failure. Fear always arrives at the destination it seeks to avoid. So my example is if, if Chris, you're at the free throw line and this is a big moment for you. It's the game winning shot to win the national championship. And in your head, you are saying, don't leave this short. I've spent my whole life to get to this point. My coach is counting on me. My dad is in the stands. They're all going to be mad if I leave it short. Don't leave it short. And then you go to shoot it. Nine out of 10 times, you're going to leave it short because fear always arrives at the destination it seeks to avoid. And so we have to change the way we look at uh, failure. Failure no longer is the end all. It's just an obstacle we need to overcome. And so, you know, I think learning that and you got to let your players know, like, look, we're going to fail along the way. That's fine. But I'd rather I'd rather gauge what does it mean if we're afraid to fail and we don't ever try? Like, try putting fear into that. Like, that's. That's serious consequences if you never go after something. So giving your guys permission to fail, treating failure completely different as an opportunity to grow will create an environment of fearlessness. You gave us the example earlier of uh, the player, obviously, instead of talking about, say, their shot selection or different things like that or, you know, turning it over, it's catch it with fearlessness. So that comes through in your language. Can you give us some other examples, maybe defensively, about how you kind of give them this fearlessness to be able to play it the right way for your team. Well, I think it basketball is a game of momentum and you, and you and I, you have coach, you can feel that momentum shift, right? There's this, that's why we call timeouts is because we sense, Oh no, the momentum shifted. And oftentimes it's because we're paralyzed in our minds. So defensively, a lot of times you, we call timeouts when the other team is scoring and we have to find a way to shift that momentum. And so it's getting your guys off their heels getting them aggressively together. And I think that's, to me, probably the, it's, it's our challenge right now. It's like, can we guard collectively? Like, I know you each want to guard individually, but can we collectively guard? Can we have this fearless attack and, and not think? Because you don't have time to think in the game of basketball. So it starts with eliminating, you know, hey, 
we're going to have this complex scheme. I'm just not a good enough coach to have a complex scheme. So I got to keep things simple, but then it's getting your guys to react and to move quickly. And it's in those moments where momentum shifted, man, you have to band together and you have to come out and be able to do it. Right. And I know another part obviously is this, these three words, hunger, habits, and humility. And that overrides a lot of what you've already talked about, but talk about again, how you bring life to those for your program. Yeah, I think it's it's become kind of our off-season progression to helping players grow. It's one of my favorite aspects of the off-season because we take each player and we lay before them a vision. Here's who we think you can become. Here's your here's your potential. And it's often a picture and a vision that's even bigger than themselves. So we'll start with what's your hunger? What's your desire to be great? Because all the great players have a an internal desire. I can't put the desire in you. Like if if if, if you're not hungry to grow, then you're not going to move past step one. But then the reality is habits are what keep you in the game. You know, what we say is hunger puts you in the game. Your daily habits keep you in the game. And so we help you structure yourself. I, this offseason was real big to me. I, I just think young kids don't know how to structure their lives. And it's easy for them to get lost in social media or video games. But to help them lay out their day and say, okay, if we structure your life in a way that models and follows the progression of what you're actually hungry for, then you're going to be on a roadmap to have success. But the key is when you have success, will you respond in humility? If you respond in humility, what you do is you put others in the game. So to go back to the progression, hunger puts you in the game, habits keep you in the game, and then humility puts others in the game. It's a way to transfer the success you've had, and it continues. And if you have a team full of that, man, it's sure fun to be around. Well, and that, that's what strikes me is that I'm, I'm imagining your players, again, once this this comes to life, however long it takes, you mentioned some of the struggles this year with some of it coming to life, which is natural for all programs yeah. and all processes. But your players probably have a lot of fun being together and a lot of fun with all the shared experiences that they have, whether good or bad. Yeah, if they don't, if they don't love it and they're not having fun, they're not going to get better. You know, that's bottom line. And I mean, I, I go back to when you and I were kids. We love the game because it was a game. And, and somewhere along the way, I think sometimes we take it a little too seriously and, and it's not fun. That doesn't mean there's hard moments. There's not serious moments. But you have to ask, how do I create an environment that's fun while guys are still growing? And part of it is I get to recruit guys. So, you know, in the recruiting process, I'm looking for guys that want to get better, guys that are willing to have their habits shaped, guys that want to live in humility. And if you can fill the room with guys like that, for me as a coach, it's really fun. You know, we all have seasons where it's like, this is hard. I'm having a hard time. I feel like I'm just wearing myself out. Then there's seasons where it's like, man, I'm having a blast. Everything I throw at these guys, they go after it. They're not perfect, but they're hungry. And those are the seasons that you really enjoy as a coach. Well, and I know I'm, I'm smiling because like that was one of my challenges and I'm sure it was yours as well as young coach is to be able to balance that fact that I love the game so much. And I want to show it to my players that I love this so much. I love coaching. I love being around the game. I love being around the players. But we have to be serious. Like, this is a serious thing. Winning is serious. People want us to win. And that balance is really tricky, isn't it? Yeah, I wish I, wish I had an answer of how to have that balance. I, I think it's, <laughs> yeah. it's being open to, like, like, I've had people tell me, and then my sisters, hey, you need to smile more. You know, my wife says that, like, smile <laughs> during the game. And we all know smiling is contagious, right? If I smile at a kid who's missed a couple shots, maybe it loosens them up a little bit rather than I'm just serious, I'm focused, but he looks at me and he's like, well, maybe coach is mad at me at this moment. So I, I, 
I've got to do a better job, I know, of making it more fun and joyful at times because that's how the game's designed to be played. I really believe that. I really believe it as well. And it's a big part of it. So give us an idea just as we've gone through this, we've listened to this. I mean, this is amazing, this whole philosophy. I love it. Talk to us then. Style, play, offense, defense, special situations. How do you take this philosophy and then how do you decide what style of play is best for your team? I think your, your team's going to determine that every year, right? I think we're very flexible in terms of how it's going to really play out each and every year. But overall, big picture, and, and this is kind of me and my transition. I could be totally wrong on this. I'm, I'm sure people email me, but I came to a point in my career early on where I was convinced that I think defense wins you regular season championships and offense wins you postseason. And I came in very much defensive-minded, and that's how we were for a long time. So that meant we spent the majority of our time on the defensive end. That's how we watched film. That's how we designed practices. And then at some point, I just was like, man, one, it's more fun to play offense. But two, I really convinced you get in the postseason, you got to make shots and you got to be able to score. Now, for those out there that, you know, don't take that too far. You still got to have a defense. I get it. But as we've shifted to that, it just means more of our emphasis in recruiting and more of our emphasis in practice is creating an offense and a team that just loves the offensive end and can play on the offensive end. And so there's always that balance. You know, you go too far and we're kind of there right now. It's like, okay, we're going to shift and and really dig down defensively. But for the most part, we want to play. We want to really make our, our money on the offensive end and, and create that fearless environment where guys are, our guys are having fun. We're in attack mode and that's everything else feeds from that. Yeah. Beautiful. And uh, do, you, do you create these devotional books? I think that's what you call them every year. Is that a de- something that you create every year? And then what is that process? Yeah, no, that was just, it's happened a few times. I want to say three years. We kind of get to the end of the year and we, we kind of ask the question, you know, what's the story to be told? We love, we, we hear from a lot of coaches that, Hey, can I have a conversation? Can I ask this? And we started, so what if we produce some stuff that we could just send to coaches? And it's really told from the perspective of our players. You know, we have a podcast called the I Am Third Podcast where the players tell the the story of the season. And it's been a tremendous resource, especially for coaches who are like, hey, I just would love to be in your locker room, but I can't. This podcast tells it how it is, the good, the bad, the mistakes. It's been a great reminder for me to go back and remember those, those seasons. And we've just kind of gotten to a point where, you know, when you have success, you can either hold on to it or you can give it away. And we've just said, look, this isn't ours to begin with. We're going to give it away. We're going to share whatever, you know, even if our opponents get it, so be it. It's just more fun to live open handed. Right. I think I think we all understand that to some degree. But for whatever reason in coaching, you kind of want to close your door. Don't share anything. But. I mean, we're only, I'm only here because I've learned from other people and stolen and taken. And so we want to give away. So those devotions and the podcasts are just ways that we can say, here's maybe a new way to think about coaching and, and discipling and mentoring your players. And it certainly helped a few coaches. Well, it's awesome. And I got to say, the thing that did stand out is exactly what you mentioned there, that it's from your player's perspective, which is even better because in a way, again, I can ask you and you can tell me whatever you want as a coach. But ultimately, the truth comes from your players. Your players know the truth, and they're the ones that can (laughs) convey it better than anyone. Exactly, exactly. Coach, the philosophy, the the success, I mean, it speaks for itself. 
I'm just guessing that you probably had opportunities to leave Indiana Westland. You've been there since 2005. So talk to us a little bit about this process of staying there and continuing to grow and build this program. Yeah, I'll be honest that when I first got the job, I'm 24 years old. I know nothing. And I often say, like, I wouldn't have hired myself. I've been on enough committees now to where it's like, we're not hiring that guy, you know. But I'm so grateful that Indiana Westland took a chance on me at that moment. And a quick side note. My brother was a junior on the team when I took the job. So I coached my brother <laughs> wow. for two years. And at that moment, I thought, I'll be here five years. I'm going to move on. Because we've all got this proverbial ladder in our mind, right? The, the next step is to move on. But the deeper we went and the more fulfillment that I began to realize as I fulfilled my purpose, which is discipleship through coaching, I was like, why would I leave this place? And I, all the things I thought you had to leave to go get, I began to get here at Indiana Westland. You know, donors began to step in, the school administration began to buy in. And before long, I just began to realize like what I really wanted in life was to make an impact, not not to be known. Like, I mean, I think, you know, I, I could move on and yes, maybe more people would would know about me, but I'm not sure I could have the impact. And there's something about staying in one place that allows you to really lay roots and have an impact. And whether I had to get over it, like the ego of maybe I don't ever get recognized in, in that way. And people look at the NAI with a little bit of a stigma, but man, I'll tell you what, some of the best coaches in the country are in the NAI and some of the best players are. And so at the end of the day, I feel extremely blessed to, to be able to do what I do, very fulfilled um, and very lucky. And you know, I don't know what the next 10 years hold, but if, it's, but if I'm still here, I'm going to be very happy. Well, you've done an incredible job and uh, you've made the big time where you are. And that's a big part of all of this for us as coaches and just incredible information, coach. So thanks for sharing the game with us. I appreciate you having me on. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game and to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion Subscribe to our newsletter at basketballmergent.com newsletter.